0: Okay, there we go. So the first thing I want to do is I want to share that today is the yard site of our matriarch, Rachel, um, who passed away. Hi, Leslie. I didn't see you before. Um, Who passed away, I mean, I think 3,700 some years ago. Um, And she was uh, buried along the road. Many of you have been to her grave sites, right? Rachel's tomb. Um, now it's hard to see where it really is. Cause it's like, it's got this whole fortress around it because it's not in a safe area. Hi, Sheila. I mean, the term safe area seems to be a bit dated, but in any event, um, so she was buried along the way. She died in childbirth and Um, you know, it seemed a little unfair, so to speak, because all the other patriarchs and matriarchs, hi Ellen, um, were buried in the cave of the couples, Ma'arad Hamachpelah, in Hebron. Some of you may have been there as well. And, um, Adam and Eve were buried there, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah, but Rachel was the only one not buried there. And it kind of seemed a little unfair for many years. She was just buried in this small out of the way roadside grave as opposed to the cave that was determined for, that was, you know, established for the Patriarch's matrix. However, the Midrash relates, and we actually read this on the second day of Rosh Hashanah in in synagogue uh, for the Haftorah, that when the first temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were being led in captivity out of Israel by their captors, the Babylonians, which, you know, these stories are sounding less and less ancient and biblical and more and more modern and contemporary. Um, And they were walking down the road out of Jerusalem. And the Midrash says that one by one, the souls of the patriarchs and matriarchs came before God to plead for mercy for the Jewish people. And each patriarch and matriarch, Midrash goes through all of them, came forward and said some merit that they had, that in their merit, God should save the Jewish people and God does not listen to them. And finally, Rachel comes forward and she says, God, you know, when I was getting married, my father gave my sister to my husband instead of me. And I didn't want my competitor, my sister, to be embarrassed. So even though my fiance and I had devised a password to make sure that my father couldn't switch the brides, I gave my password to my sister so that she wouldn't be embarrassed. And God, if I could give up on what I wanted for the sake of of my competitor, what are you doing with your children who have worshiped a competitor God, so to speak, who have worshiped foreign gods, and now you're going to take revenge on them, so to speak? In my merit, the children should come back. And the Midrash says that God says to Rachel, wipe your tears and stop crying. In your merit, your children will come back to the land. Um, And it's really a very powerful and a beautiful Midrash um, I, I relate to it for many reasons in a, in a very personal and visceral way, not, not the only one being that my name also is Rachel Rachel, of which Ruchi is a nickname, um, and just this notion of our children, you know, being led very far away from their homeland, um, you know, both my own biological children, some of whom are very far away from Judaism, um, and our collective nation, as well as our brothers and sisters in Israel who have been carried away into captivity, and it's such a painful and contemporary midrash, by the same token, God does tell Rachel, I will bring your children back. And if we look at the past 100 years, how many Jews have come back to Israel in droves? And really, even though obviously we are suffering from a horrible, horrific massacre in Jewish history, but if you look at the big picture over the past 100 years, we are coming back to Israel miraculously, just as God promised Rachel. So a friend of mine sent me a piece of art this morning commemorating Rachel's yard site today. And I wanted to share it with you guys because I found it so moving and so beautiful. Welcome, Sydney and Avril. Good to see you guys here today. Okay, so give me one second while I share my screen. Um, again, I am using my... Uh, I'm using my um, iPad. So give me a second to figure out how to find what I'm looking for. Uh, hmm. Um, No, I don't think this is what I'm looking for. Rocky, while you're waiting, can I say thank you to Avril? Without her, I would never know how to get on this class. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. Okay. On your party night tonight. Okay, sorry about that. My Zoom crashed, but apparently I'm back. Sheila, did you get a chance to say what you wanted to say? Yes, I'm seeing heads shaking. Yes, okay. Here we go. Here is the picture. Can you guys see this? This is a picture of our mother. Isn't it beautiful? There's a picture of our mother Rachel. You don't see it? Nope i do oh you do okay yeah yeah of our mother rachel in her wedding gown mm-hmm. leading leading mm-hmm. our troops into battle to bring all of our children home i don't know when i saw this picture this morning it just kind of it hit me right in the gut beautiful okay. thank beautiful. you for sharing it oh. I'll post that on our chat as well so that you guys can have it in case. I mean, it requires a little context, but just so you can have it. Okay, so let us begin. Um, We are on chapter 18, um, if I'm not mistaken, chapter 18, yes, verse 9, page 190 in the book. And for those of you who are new or haven't been in a while, we're doing the book of Proverbs by King Solomon with the commentary of the Malbim. And it goes through different, um, different ethical statements, poetically written. Mm -hmm. And we sort of use it to unpack, you know, what does this mean for us and how do we apply these teachings to our lives today? And there's always a practical, practical, contemporary uh, application to whatever it is that we're going through, which is what makes the Torah so powerful and so universal. All right. So verse nine. Gamis um, Repha the one who is slack in his work, ach hu labal He is like a brother to one. He is a brother to one who is a destroyer. Okay, so we're talking here about the trait of laziness. Somebody who is lazy in his work is a brother to one who is destructive. So what does this mean? Obviously, laziness is not a very good character trait. Uh, We'll all agree on that. But how can it be compared to being destructive? Destructive is not the same thing. Um, By the way, before we go any further, I did want to say I forgot that I wanted to tell you guys something before we get started. I've been seeing a lot of statements out there in our current, you know, crisis in Israel um, about how this didn't happen in a vacuum and that the people in Gaza are oppressed and, you know, things like that. So I just want to make a statement. Whenever I'm confused about something, I try to look at Torah values. What does the Torah tell us about this thing? And it really, really helps to clear things up. So first of all, If you will look at any dictator, any oppressor, any school shooter, and you dig a little bit, you will find a person with a very troubled childhood. Either that person was abused or mentally unwell or had a personality disorder or perhaps exhibited sociopathic or psychopathic tendencies. I don't think any of us would agree that that somehow exonerates their behavior. Or we wouldn't say like, well, you know, Hitler grew up in a military home and his father was really emotionally absent and abusive, so this didn't happen in a vacuum. None of us would apply that logic in a situation like that. Now, if you want to know, does the Torah ever look at context when we talk about atrocities? Hmm, Let's take a look. The Torah does offer an exception for murder. What is that exception? The Torah says, (laughs) If somebody rises up to kill you, you kill him first. Now, it doesn't say that you should torture him. It doesn't say that you should behead him. It doesn't say that you should kill his kids. It says that you can kill in self-defense. That's what we call context. If somebody rises up to kill you, you kill him first. And actually not to dwell on a very loaded issue, but if you want to know the Jewish view on abortion, there is context there too. The Jewish view does not align neatly with the Christian right, nor does it align neatly with the liberal left. The Jewish view is that a person's body actually does not belong to themselves, but that a person's body is loan from God. However, the Jewish view is that if a fetus is threatening the life of the mother, and what that means is the subject of intense Talmudic and rabbinic debate, which I'm not going to get into at the moment, but if the fetus is threatening the life of a mother, yes, the fetus is a life, but it's not a full life, the life of the mother is a full life, if the fetus is threatening the life of the mother, physically or mentally, then the mother is allowed to rise up, so to speak, and kill that fetus in self-defense. So Judaism does offer context, but it is very limited and specific. So do atrocities ever happen in a vacuum? No, they never do. No normal, emotionally healthy, happy, successful, mentally well, 18 year old picks up a gun and goes to school and shoots down his students that has never happened and that will never happen look at neo-nazis which 20 year olds are joining neo-nazi youth movements ones who are troubled and emotionally neglected and in pain there is always context but according to the torah context does not exonerate violence okay I just wanted to make that statement because it's been bugging me for a while, and you guys are my audience, so you, I'm sharing it with you. Okay, back to Proverbs. All right, so only because it mentioned a destroyer, and then of course that made me think of the destroyers that we're dealing with. Okay, also, he who is slack in his work is brother to one who uh, who is a destroyer. So, how does the Torah um, equate or compare a person who is lazy? to a person who is destructive. Okay, so let's go to the commentary. Workers employed to build a palace for the king are obviously expected to build, right? This is true of anything. Let's say you hire somebody to... Uh, to do your bookkeeping. Well, you you they're supposed to do your bookkeeping. You hire someone to babysit your kid. You want them to babysit your kid, not to ignore them while they scroll Instagram. You hire someone to clean your house. You want them to clean your house, not talk on the phone all day and forget what they're doing, okay? If one worker builds and pulls down what he has done. So let's say let's say I hire somebody to do my laundry and she comes in and she does my laundry and after she does my laundry she throws all my laundry outside in the backyard and it gets dirty again. Right? I'll say you didn't do my laundry even though she did it but then she let it come undone, well, that's just as bad as not doing it. Bottom line is it's not done. For Both will be punished equally. um, Sorry, if one worker builds and pulls down what he has done and another sits idle and does nothing, both will be punished equally for in either case, the building is not completed, right? Bottom line is the work has not been done. The work is not complete. Similarly, there is in effect no real difference between one who does a mitzvah a positive act commanded by the almighty and then extinguishes it as it were by committing a sin right now. You see this, people do this sometimes. Sometimes people will give, you know, what we call a backhanded compliment, right? Wow. That was really good work. I mean, for you. Okay. So you did a mitzvah, right? You gave someone a compliment, but then you extinguished it because you basically pulled it apart. It was like you threw the dirty laundry outside. You threw the clean laundry outside in the backyard. You undid it. Now, here's another way that you can undo a mitzvah. Let's say that you do a mitzvah, right? Let's say that you, um, you're you talking to somebody and she sounds really lonely and sad. And you're like, oh, why don't you join our family for Shabbat this week? And she's like, oh, my gosh, really? Thank you. Oh, my gosh, you're so nice. I can't wait. What time should I come? What can I bring? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then you hang up the phone and all of a sudden you're like, oh gosh, what did I do? I really don't want to have this person over for Shabbat. And then you spend the rest of the time grumbling and complaining and regretting that you did the mitzvah. The Talmud says that exactly the way if you do a bad deed and you regret it and you commit not to do it again, you erase it. If you do a good deed and you regret it and you wish you never did it and you commit not to do it again, you erase it. Right? So it's like the lazy person who never did the good deed is in the same boat as a person who did it and then undid it. So we want to make sure that when we do a good deed, we don't undo it. We don't destroy it with our own hands so that we're left at square one. Okay. Heather, I'm just going to finish the commentary and then I'm going to take your comment. Both have not fulfilled their duty. Their task was to build the name of God, meaning um where are we he who is slacking okay to build the name of god which is a strong tower so this is going to the next verse and in this both have failed equally so we want to make sure that when we're doing good deeds we want to make sure to keep them and hang on to them don't don't undo them by doing doing the opposite and untying your ties and you know regretting your good deeds that you've done and then they're going to slip right through your fingers heather When you said the thing about the backhanded compliment, so maybe I'll shed some light on this. I never really thought of it as a backhanded compliment, but then I remember that in Parsha's Noah, in the Torah portion of Noah, it specifically says he was righteous for that time. Mm -hmm. Isn't that similar to like, it was a really good job, I mean, for you. Yeah. So you're asking an excellent question. I'm actually going to broaden your question. The Torah tells us not to speak ill of others and not to share their misdeeds. Yet the Torah speaks ill of others and shares their misdeeds, right? Right. The Torah tells us every time Moses got angry, which was not very many, by the way, <laughs> in 40 years, I think it was three or four, um, which is an excellent record. <laughs> um, but, but if we had a person like that in our lives, it wouldn't be our place to share it, right? So the answer to the riddle, which is a, it's a very, very astute observation, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is that the Torah exists to teach us morals and values, right? So just as a person is allowed to share potentially negative information about another person, as long as there's a constructive purpose, right? So for example, um, Let's say if somebody says to me, oh, I see that, you know, so-and-so taught in your Sunday school, do you think she would make a good babysitter? And let's say, I mean, we happen to have amazing Sunday school teachers. So this is a fictitious example, but let's say I were to say, oh, actually she kind of wasn't really that great of a Sunday school teacher. Like she didn't really show up on time and she was always chatting with her friends instead of paying attention to the kids. That would be important, constructive information for me to share with somebody who is considering hiring this young lady as a babysitter. So too, the Torah is allowed, so to speak, to share what may sound like negative information for a constructive purpose. And everything that is written in the Torah is for a constructive purpose, which is to teach us eternal values. So every time the Torah mentions to us that Moses got angry, there's a lesson there to be learned for us. Right. And when the Torah says that Noah was a righteous person in his generation Right. And there's two opinions on that. One opinion says, well, he was only so great because his generation was so lousy. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been if he would have been in Abraham's generation, he wouldn't have seemed like much. But the other opinion is that he was even greater for having retained his values in a generation like his, which was so corrupt. Right. So um, there's something to learn from both of those opinions. But, um, but yeah, that, that, that's a good question. The only reason the Torah shares that is where there is a constructive purpose and a lesson to be learned for the rest of us. Rachi, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Going back a step. So if you invite someone for Shabbos and then you grouse about it, d- is that different than inviting for someone for Shabbos, having a great time and then going and stealing a candy bar from a store? Oh, thank are you the for, mitzvahs canceled out or are they... Right. Thank you for mentioning that. The, the answer is no. One mitzvah does not cancel out one sin. They, you get you get the reward for the mitzvah and you get the consequence for the sin. They, they do not cancel each other out. The only thing that cancels is if you regret that specific mitzvah, then you undo that specific mitzvah. Okay, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions before we go on? I do like to piggyback on what Sheila was saying, though. The opposite is not true, right? Like, isn't there a concept that you can perform a mitzvah and it can make up for something bad that you've done or no? Um, I'm not familiar with that teaching. No, maybe I'm thinking like you can get sick and that can make up for something bad you've done. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Okay, well, I I will tell you what, yeah, there is a concept of a kapara. Now, a kapara means atonement. So we all make mistakes, right? There's no question about that. So if a person experiences discomfort, whether it's physical or emotional, financial, right, then there's a concept that that discomfort or pain can be an atonement for them for things that they have done wrong but when in general but i'm saying when it comes to a specific um consequence that someone has done wrong they still have to do teshuva for it they still have to undergo a process of repentance um hold on one second guys that might be my that might be my meter reader give me one second i'm sorry hello okay, a representative is on their way to my premises. I'm just giving you guys a heads up. <laughs> um, so when I think about an atonement, like if a person has a, something they did wrong, and they need to repent for it, right? So something bad that happens, to you can't erase that, meaning if you're not sorry for what you did, and you're still doing it, then something bad that happens to you can't erase it. But let's say that you forgot about it, and, and you don't remember doing it, and you never repented for it. But you know, Or you did do teshuva for it, but maybe not enough. So then the bad things that happen can come to erase and atone for for those things. And that actually is a very comforting thought. You know, if uh, like the other night I was at my nephew's wedding and I was dancing in a circle and there was another circle behind me and somebody stepped on me with a high heel and it was, ooh, it still hurts actually. Um, And I'm like, okay, you know what? it should be a kapara. It should be for an atonement. And, you know, when, when annoying, you know, minor things happen like that, it's a very comforting thought that, okay, you know what, this can serve as an erasure for some of the negative things I've done that I've forgotten about, or maybe didn't repent appropriately. And this is God giving me an opportunity to wipe my sleep clean. Robin. Um, So isn't this in um, Chabad, I know has a prison and reform kind of, um, program. Yes. Chabad has, um, an organization called Aleph, I believe that services, uh, Jews in prison. Is that what you're referring to? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very beautiful initiative. What about it? No, just that, you know, that's, uh, uh, and you know it's a program designed. I mean, I know there's other aspects to it, but I know that this is, I'm sure, built into the idea, right? I would of, re- of rehabilitation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to ten and eleven, which we're going to do together. Migdal Oz shame Hashem, the name of God is a strong tower. Bo Yerutz Tzadik finiskav. a righteous person can run to it. And be raised on high. Hon ashir a rich person's wealth, is his strong city, ukechoma and like a high wall in his imagination. So these two verses contrast what gives a person a sense of security when they're in trouble. In verse 10. We're saying that God can be your refuge in times of trouble. And I know a lot of people have connected to that concept over the past couple of weeks. People who have not necessarily been so connected to Judaism or spirituality or prayer. And you're seeing this all over Israel, but also all over the diaspora, that Jews are turning to spirituality to find a place of security and refuge in troubled times. And in verse 11, we talk about a wealthy person who views his wealth and his money as a refuge. Um, so we're, we're going to unpack that. But before we do, I just want to tell you a story. A friend of mine was telling me the other day, there's a woman that we both know and come and she grew up with me. She was friends with my sister and she married an extremely wealthy Jewish guy. And they have a couple of beautiful homes and they go to Israel for the holidays all the time. And this woman, um, had tickets to go to Israel after Sukkot because her daughter who lives in Israel was having a baby. And, um, her daughter went into early labor and she had her baby on Shabbat, October 7th. And she was trying to go to Israel to be with her daughter. But obviously that was a time when nobody was, I mean, other Then, you know, other than being called up for the army, nobody was voluntarily going to Israel. Now I I know people are going to Israel and they are feeling more comfortable and and that they want to go. But I was thinking to myself, here's this person who has oodles and oodles of money, who could afford absolutely anything. And her daughter is in a war zone, having had a premature baby. And where is her money going to help her now? there's no way she she needs to get to israel or she needs to i mean people who are in israel for the holidays who are trying to get back home i know there's someone on this call who's in that boat it didn't matter how much money you had you if you couldn't find a flight you couldn't find a flight right so these two verses are contrasting the person who views god as their stronghold and their refuge Versus the person who views their money as their stronghold and their refuge. So let's go to the commentaries. By his righteousness, a tzaddik, a righteous person, establishes the strong tower of verse 10. Meaning when we say that God is a strong tower, who builds that strong tower? You do. You build that strong tower, like it says here. Everything he does is for his name's sake and for his glory. Everything that you do in the name of God, every mitzvah, every act of kindness, every act of charity, every Shabbat candles lit, every prayer said, every visit to Israel, every piece of kosher food purchased at a higher price, every um, expenditure that you made to celebrate a holiday or to honor Shabbat, every guest that you hosted in your home, right? Every single one of those things is like are like the bricks that all add up to your strong tower of God. That is what will keep you safe in a time of trouble. This becomes a refuge to which he can run to be elevated to spiritual and physical safety. You know, when um, this past Shabbat, our, our assistant rabbi, Rabbi Josh, Grodko, who is Sydney Harris's son-in-law, I know Sydney's on the call today. Um, he spoke from the pulpit in his sermon about the experience he had when he was in Israel for the holiday, and the they were in a bomb shelter in Jerusalem. He and his wife and their kids, and I'm not sure who else. And in the bomb shelter, they were sitting there singing songs of Jerusalem, and he started singing for us this. This song. It's a very, very beautiful song that I it's very old. It's from when I was a kid, probably before. Um, about Jerusalem. I, I'll just sing you a little part of it. And it's it's part of our prayers, and it's where we ask God to return to Jerusalem and to return us to Jerusalem. And he was describing the sense of serenity that came over him as he was sitting there in the bomb shelter, singing these prayerful songs about Israel, you know, and I know for me, when I start feeling overwhelmed um, by what's going on and yesterday was an especially frightening day with the news out of New York city and Cooper union college. I don't know how many of you saw what's absolutely horrific and frightening what's going on in America right now. And When I get back to my prayers and I get back to the words of King David and the words of Psalms, it really is like climbing into a tower and safeguarding myself and bringing my emotional state back to a state of calm and peace and safety. So you build your own refuge, your own tower of God with your own connection to spirituality. And that is the place that you can feel safe. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for outrage. There's a place for advocacy. There is a place for shouting from the rooftops that this world has gone mad. But if you want to safeguard your own serenity, you have to find the refuge of spirituality because nothing in the news is going to give you that sense of peace. So that's the person who considers God his um, who considers God his refuge. And actually, we say this verse. Um, for those of you who are familiar with the Berkat Hamazon, the prayer after bread, right? So the very end of it, which is a part that a lot of people know, I think, I think that Jewish camps, um, from what I have observed, um, did sing a, an abridged version of the Berkat Hamazon. But I think this is in the abridged version, right? Um, Maynard's go, Yeru right? Um, <laughs> um, no, hold on one second. Um, <laughs> I'm forgetting the two now. But the words are, Baruch Right? Baruch Blessed is the person. The word Betach means security. Who finds his security in God. And then God will be his security. So we see that there's this reciprocal relationship. If you will find your security in God, then God will offer you security, right? But you're the one who has to seek out that refuge first. Okay, so that's the spiritual relationship. A rich person, however, we're on page 191 now in the commentary, who regards his wealth as a fortress against trouble is deceiving himself. For material possessions, provide only an imaginary refuge, not a real one. And I'm reminded, some of you may have seen my um, social media post about my grandmother, whom I went to visit yesterday, um, two or two days ago. I was in New York um, for my nephew's wedding, and um, I went to visit my grandmother, who lives in Brooklyn, and she is 94 years old, and she was a Holocaust survivor, and she was a wealthy woman before the Holocaust. I mean, she was, she was a teenager. Her family was quite wealthy. Um, and many Hungarian Jews were. They, they, many of them lived in beautiful homes. They had successful businesses. They had beautiful furniture and beautiful dishes. And they baked beautiful pastries. And everything was just so. And um, how did that help? In 1944, when the Nazis invaded their village on the holiday of Shavuot, in case you were wondering if Hamas takes a page out of the Nazis playbook, it does um, and rounded up her entire village to this day. my I mean, my grandmother is not well anymore, but every year on Shavuot, she would light more Yartzeit candles than I can count because that's when all of her relatives were taken to Auschwitz and she doesn't know most of the residents of Hungary light their yard site candles on Shavuot because they don't know when their relatives died. They don't have a yard site. They don't have a grave. They don't have a cemetery to go to. So they light their yard site candles and they commemorate these mass yard sites on Shavuot. So in what way did their wealth help them? Nothing, zero, right? Um, and unfortunately, so many of them were lost, but my grandmother Um, You know, she's unfortunately not communicative anymore, but until the end, her most commonly repeated expression was the Yiddish expression, Gleit Gott." Gleit Gott" means believe in God, believe in God, believe in God. Whenever you would ask her, how's it going? I believe in God. How's it going? I believe in God. Everything you asked her, believe in God. That was her battle cry. That was her refuge, right? Now, don't get me wrong. She still believed in wealth, (laughs) (laughs) She made sure all her kids went to college. She was adamant and they did. Um, So, you know, she, she, she wanted to hedge her bets on all fronts, but her refuge was God. No question about it. Okay. Thoughts, comments, questions on 10 and 11. Oh, there's my guy. Okay. Hang on. I'm putting you guys on mute and I am pausing the recording. So Okay, there we go. So, any thoughts, comments, questions on 10 and 11? Anyone? Okay. Okay, cool. Let us continue. Um, number 12, Lifne Shever before a calamity a man's heart is haughty but before honor goes humility okay so we're talking here about arrogance about a person who you know there's a there's a verse in the book of psalms where we, we sometimes say it in the hollow prayer on holidays um where where king david king david said, said Hold on, hold on I am I am just you everybody okay um where King David says um um uh, uh how does it go um I said I said in my serenity I will never falter Baniya Marty Bishalvi Bal emotliolam no it's not in the hall of prayer sorry it's in it's in a different verse of Psalms I said in my serenity, I will never falter, right? There are times where we feel invincible. We feel like we can do anything. So King Solomon is telling us before calamity, a person's heart is haughty, right? We're invincible. We're so powerful. Nobody can get us. And then unfortunately, a calamity comes along. I can't believe how how prescient this is. A calamity comes along and all of a sudden we realize that we were more vulnerable than we thought you know and and i think especially right now what's happening is that a lot of people who thought they knew who their friends were and they had a certain sense of naive belief that the non-jewish world would come running to our defense and we're seeing now that that's actually not the case and that we're being humbled in a very, very significant way. And I think what a lot of Jews are discovering is that if you wanna know who's gonna help you, it's your fellow Jews who are gonna help you. I saw a post on social media this morning. It says, if you wanna know who your friends are, ask, the, ask yourself, would they hide you if the Nazis were coming? Which is a chilling question to have to ask. And three weeks ago, I would have said, okay, stop being dramatic. And now I'm like, that's actually not dramatic. So I think that American Jews have been living in somewhat, um, maybe the word arrogant is too harsh, but we're putting our faith in Ivy league schools. We're putting our faith in these um, prestigious universities. And I will say, and for many American Jewish parents, getting a secondary education on that degree and on that pedigree, has been more important than getting a Jewish education for our kids. And we're, and on average, we have been spending more money, time and energy on university educations than on Jewish education. And I think that we are all being collectively humbled right now because that's not where our refuge is and that's not where our safeguard is. And anybody who saw the footage from Cooper Union College and saw that image of the Jewish kids being barricaded into a library in the face of a mob That's not where our kids are safe. It's just not. And I'm hearing more and more parents saying, I wish my kid were in a Jewish school. That's what I'm hearing right now. Okay. Commentary. Everyone proud in heart is abomination to God, directly punished by him. That's back in chapter 16, right? So we've already said that arrogance as a character trait is incompatible with God. There are very few things that God despises more than arrogance. Why? Because an arrogant person to some level thinks they are God. And so there's no room for God. Right? I have seen, I'm not such an acronym person because I always think like, well, anybody could make anything up, but I've seen one acronym that I really like, ego. E-G-O stands for edging God out. And I I think that's very on point, right? Uh, There's another very harsh verse in the Talmud that says a a person who gets angry is like worshiping idols. Anger is an expression, an outward expression of arrogance. Why is it like they're worshiping idols? What does that have in common? I could believe in God and get angry. The answer is that the idol that you're worshiping is yourself. My thoughts, my opinions, my way. That's what should be honored and respected right now. So if you're worshiping yourself, well, that's incompatible to worshiping God. Serving God is by definition a humble experience. That somebody has the bigger picture, not you. That somebody has the master plan, not you. That somebody knows what's good for you, not necessarily you, right? Hence, a haughty, arrogant heart presages the calamity that must follow even for a rich man who thinks to find refuge in his wealth. So people who have a lot of wealth, which is going back to the previous verse, are at greater risk for arrogance. Why? Because wealth often translates into power. A wealthy person can get a lot done at the snap of fingers. They often have staff working for them and resources available for them. And there are keys to unlock resources and services that are unavailable to other people. So they can feel kind of like God. So this person, a person who has wealth has to be extra careful to stay humble. It's much easier to be humble when you're poor, right? Because it is by definition a humbling experience. A wealthy person has to work twice as hard to stay humble, to attribute their success to God and not themselves, to understand that if, They have the resources of wealth. They are a public servant and are expected to use their wealth to help others, right? A humble man, however, trusts in the strong tower in the name of God. A person who is humble will remember more readily that God runs the world. It'll be much easier for that person to find their safety in God. Who abides with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, he will attain honor So who is the truly honorable person, right? Is it the rich person who carries himself around with this sense of honor that they feel very honored and other people honor them all the time, right? I'm always reminded, this is such a classic, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, If I Were a Rich Man, right? And in the song, Tevye describes, if I were a rich man, he says, everybody would line up to ask me questions, right? If you please, Reb Tevye, pardon me, Roquevia. when you're rich, they think you really know. Right? So he's drawing this picture. All these people are lining up to ask me advice. Why? Because I'm rich. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily mean I have any of the answers, but when you're rich, they think you really know. So the person who has wealth is at great risk of false honor. And that person has to work twice as hard to stay humble. So, and and the person who remembers to stay humble, especially if they have to overcome the obstacles for it, that is the person who is truly honorable. That's not fake honor. That's real honor. Okay. Thank you for your comments, everybody. Just catching up on comments. Okay. That's that for verse 12. Any thoughts, comments, or questions before we close for today? I have a, just a comment. Um, I don't think I've ever heard you sing so much, and I think it was what everybody <laughs> needed.
1: <laughs> I do. I love don't think, think
0: there's a coincidence. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe I'll do it some more. We'll see where it takes me. <laughs> we'll see where my new hobby takes me. Brokey, did you, do you have your concert yet? The comes it. You mean? Yeah. Yeah, we did it. We did it two oh, weeks ago. I'm sorry. It. Okay. No. Um, Robin I don't know if you know this but I used to be in a band oh, you know now that you say that I do remember you saying that I'm, I'm not surprised <laughs> <laughs> yes all right any other thoughts or comments before we close up for today thank you Okay, thank ladies, you so, so much with you all Rocky? yes okay. Do we light a yardsite candle for Rachel and Nina? Do we light a you know, candle at all? It's so interesting that you asked that. My husband, I was just checking to make sure we're on for next week, but we are. Um, my husband did. He did light a candle for Rachel last night, and I don't remember him ever doing that before, but I don't know. Maybe because of the situation in Israel, he felt that he wanted to. So good. You know, lighting right, I just a lit one candle is not um, it's not like Something that you're allowed to do, not allowed to do, it's sort of like just a tradition, like a custom. So, Mm -hmm. if you feel called upon to light a candle for somebody's yard site, even if they're not related to you, it's certainly a nice, good thing to do. It's not a problem. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, okay, everybody, may we be strengthened by the beauty of the Torah and by its eternal words. And remember that when things seem overwhelming or just Really, just too much. We can find our refuge in our in our beautiful prayers and our relationship with God, and um, and hopefully that will help us to remain calm and remain strong in the challenging times ahead. Amen. Thank you. Amen. 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 Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Shabbat Shabbos. Thank you. Shabbat Shabbos. Have a great day.